Hello and welcome to another College Optometrist podcast with me, Daniel Hardeman McCartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. And me, Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College. Uh, today we'll be talking to Jasleen Jolly, optometrist and researcher working in Oxford about gene therapy. But first, it's 2020, Daniel. Uh, how are you feeling about that? I'm feeling really excited about that. Oh yeah. Is this because of optometry lulls? Well, well, absolutely. So yeah. it is the year not only for optometry and of optometry, but of great cheesy optometry jokes. Yes, I think when I first heard about this, I was uh, with another colleague and someone said it and we were like, oh, are there, are there big like targets for 2020? Is, it, is there something monumental happening? And they were like, well, there is that, but also it's it's like 6-6 six, six and 2020 and yeah. stuff and that's fun. Well, thanks to my 2020 vision, I saw it coming. See, there it is. Um, but I mean, fair enough, it doesn't, it's not going to happen very often, is it? Or again, ever, I suppose. Well, in 2021 and beyond, hindsight will be 2020. Oh, he, he's prepared these. He hasn't told me and he's just prepared them. How so, ironic. <laughs> good for you. Are there any New Year's resolutions, Daniel, that you can confess to having already broken? Be honest. Um, probably all of them. Right. Food, exercise, Yeah. using a street, retinoscope. I mean, all the classics. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, even if you do it for like nine days, that's still nine days in which you were, you know, doing the things you said you did. <laughs> that's right. Indeed. It still counts. It still helps. I think one of my resolutions might be to introduce guests better on the podcast uh, because uh, you're here for this one uh, with the interview. Um, I sort of sound surprised. I'm like, Jasmine. I sound like we've like bumped into each other in the supermarket and just decided to do a podcast. Did did you do it? Impromptu Which is, in the supermarket? No, oh. that's not how they work. Just to share the magic, that's not in fact how they work. Um, although if I see someone notable in a supermarket, maybe that is how they'll work in future. And then I'll have to call you up and you'll have to come down and then we'll, you know. We'll just take over aisle four of Tesco's. Yes, it will be the studio. Uh, so today we do bring you my interview with Jasmine Jolly, in which I sound surprised, but I'm not. We arranged it beforehand. Uh, it was recorded before Christmas, in case that matters to you, and if you can even imagine such a time now. Uh, Jasmine works at the University of Oxford and in Oxford Eye Hospital and is involved in clinical research into retinal gene therapy and low vision uh, and is currently undertaking a PhD. Uh, she also won the college's highly prestigious Philip Cole Prize uh, for practice-based research in 2018. So I spoke to Jasleen about how she got into research, about imposter syndrome, uh, about how gene therapy and indeed genes themselves work, uh, which conditions are close to being treated with gene therapy, what that means for optometrists, and why the idea that we only use a small percentage of our brain is nonsense. Uh, I mean, at this point after Christmas, I feel I can only use so much in my brain, but I might be a chocolate overdose, I think. I, I really enjoyed the um, interview in particular, um, her advice to practitioners about managing expectations. It's such an exciting area. Mm. Um, it's, you know, you know, all practitioners are really enthusiastic about it, but the importance of managing patient expectations when it comes to the topic of gene therapy. And, you know, really interesting what she was saying about imposter syndrome too. Yeah. And, and um, I, I know the work we've done at the college, it's not just PhD students and researchers who may be affected, but actually undergraduate students entering optometry as well who feel you know, that they're going to be surrounded by a lot of people who are really bright and super clever and they're not going to keep up with it. So um, mm. really interesting, her thoughts on imposter syndrome. So it's uh, for those who don't know, it's basically the feeling that you don't belong, right? It's sort of, you know, what am I doing here? I don't feel I can do this, even if you've, you know, very clearly can. Or you're not good enough to yeah, be there. Right. 
Yeah, sure. How many people do you think, uh, Daniel, in practice know about gene therapy then? As you say, people are quite excited about it. Is, it. is it becoming better known? Is it quite well known, even if not the specifics, but the general principles? Patients often come in clutching a copy oh, of a newspaper, having read an article mm-hmm. um, which may not have been particularly well researched about a treatment that may save their sight or restore their sight. Mm. So practitioners are often confronted with, with with patients with very high expectations, having read something, and want their optometrist to answer all the questions there and then right away right. within half an hour. Yes, tricky. Uh, but to help, here's Jasleen with all the info. Jasleen, hello. Good morning. Thank you very much for being with us. So, uh, we'd like to speak to you today about your research, all the things you've done. So, how did you get into research initially? What's the story there? I've always been interested in research and science, um, and I wanted to do a PhD when I was younger, but I never thought I was clever enough. So, I gradually got involved in more and more clinical research in all the jobs, pretty much all the jobs I've done. Then I went over to Australia, worked in a research lab full-time, um, got to learn a lot about the rigour of the way research has to be done, mm-hmm. um, learned a lot from that job, um, and then came back, did a master's degree in investigative ophthalmology, and from there moved into Oxford, where I started in 50% clinical, 50% research, and then gradually I've been buying out more of my time to do more research, but still have some clinical work. But I like my research to have a very clinical component, so it's very relevant to patients. So what would you say, was there like a turning point? As you say, you sort of thought, oh, I'm not clever enough to do this. Was it sort of the reality of just doing it and saying, well, I'm doing it. So, you know, I'm obviously good enough to do this. I'm doing it. Uh, Yeah, I think so. And just getting positive feedback from people around you that, yes, this is valuable work. I think uh, amongst scientists, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. So you never completely lose that. Mm. Um, But it depending on the environment and when I see my work being used by other people, I think that's the biggest endorsement. So what do you enjoy most about undertaking research? Can you remember a favourite moment in particular? As you said, you mentioned, um, you know, seeing other people using it. Is that through uh, conversations or is that through sort of citations or you hear someone mentioning it? Uh, A combination of all of those things. So hearing my work talked about when I've gone to meetings, conferences, mm. seeing my own work being cited in other people's talk is is fantastic. Getting feedback from clinicians about how they might have um, changed the way they do something in low vision care, for example, um, is great. Uh, having an influence on the trials protocols that have then been used for various gene therapy trials. Um, recently, uh, been at another hospital and there someone came up to me saying that he'd been referring to my work nice. for his own research so that was very exciting for me has anyone come up to you and said are you are you are you justine jolly has anybody done that yet oh not yet not yet if, okay. if well, that happens i know i've made it uh, indeed absolutely <laughs> i'll have to do that to you at a conference if it hasn't happened. <laughs> absolutely one of the biggest endorsements for me was getting the college award oh you shouldn't have Yes, yeah, so you won the, the Philip Cole Prize. That's right, yes. for practice-based research. That's right, yeah. Well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> it was it was our honour. Uh, so how did you get into this particular area of research? Uh, we're going to talk about gene therapy, so how did you get involved in that? Uh, I had always been interested in genetics. I knew Oxford had a very strong genetics programme. Uh, so when I completed my master's degree, which had a genetics component, um, a job came up in Oxford, which was clinical. So I, I applied for that, hoping I would then 
managed to get into the research program mm. and that's what happened so so is it genes and eyes in particular that they're sort of good on or what po- what point did they come together were you interested in genes first and then became eye related and you thought oh hang on uh, or was it was it the other way around I, i've always been fascinated by eyes i had looked at um genetics as a career before i decided on top tree mm-hmm. but i didn't want to be stuck in a lab see so combining Genes and eyes was perfect because I'm still working with genetics, but I'm doing it in a more clinical, more interesting All way. Right. So it combines both of my passions. Bingo. Uh, great. Okay. So gene therapy is a fairly buzzy term uh, that we hear about a lot in relation to all sorts of areas of healthcare. It's obviously something that, um, you know, is very attractive to people. It sounds like it could be an absolute, you know, uh, a game changer. But can you briefly describe what it actually is? Gene therapy means that you're replacing a gene that is not working well um, or is defective or is missing or in some cases uh, they're using a gene to uh, create a function to dampen down a disease process right Uh, so you're using genetic material introducing genetic material into the eye the heart whatever part of the body using in most cases a viral vector Mm. which means that you're using the envelope of the the virus because viruses have evolved to get into cells so they're the perfect carrier but you take out the viral dna and replace it with the dna that you want to get in there mm. um so that's basically what it is right in a nutshell. okay so it's like taking a, a hateful letter and putting a nice thing in it and then suddenly ah look at that uh, you've subverted it very good uh, so how do you find out what a gene does genes do all sorts of things and all sorts of genes how do you find out what a specific gene actually does there's two methodologies so one is lab-based so experimental work you can um Create the ge- first look for where the gene is expressed right. in which cells because that's going to give you a clue. So expressed means whether it's doing something or not. Whether it's actually produced right. by those cells because mm. every gene is in every cell of the body, um, but they get switched on and off depending on whether they are needed by that cell. So you can actually use lab-based uh, techniques to figure out where those genes are being expressed, where they're being switched on and actually producing a protein. Mm-hmm. So we can hone in on different layers of the eye to see the expression. So that's the first thing, because that will give you a clue as to what it's doing. Then you can actually create the protein and analyze it uh, using various techniques in the laboratory. So I'm not involved in that side of things. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it, they do very interesting work to figure out what if you change it in a certain way, does that change the way it's folded? Does that change how it's interacting with other proteins? Um, because every gene produces a protein, so sure. that's why proteins are the key. So uh, one aspect is lab-based experimentation. The other is what we call in silico. So it's computer simulations. Mm-hmm. So we know how uh, groups of amino acids um, behave and when you change the order of those so as as would happen in a in a gene mutation when the, the genetic coding is changed you change the order of the amino acids so that protein is going to come together differently so the in silico what they do is they look at how that protein is then folding and then how that impacts on its function because some regions are more important for a protein function than others so this is all before we're getting to the idea of treating anything this is just saying okay if we look at this and try and see and turn it on and off and see what it does this is just to clarify what gene is doing what so that you can then say look if this gene isn't working here 
we need to change that so it can do what it's supposed to do. Is that fair? Yeah, there's two aspects to that. So one is what gene is doing what? Because if the gene, um, by producing an abnormal protein, um, that protein can then degrade and it's effectively not there. So right. you're just not getting... You, you're getting loss of function that is easier to treat with gene therapy Mm -hmm. if the gene um, is producing an abnormal protein which doesn't degrade but stays there but has a toxic effect then you can't just replace that with gene therapy Mm -hmm. you have to actually dampen down that toxic protein and then um, replace the gene with a healthy working copy well the other aspect you need to look at is genetic code is quite complicated sure so you can get lots of changes that actually don't have any impact. So mm. that goes back to what I was saying about how different um, aspects of the protein, some are more important than others. Yeah. So we also need to determine whether a change in the DNA code is actually pathological. Does it mean anything? Right, so see. when we're screening for genetic defects with genetic testing, some polymorphism, some changes don't mean anything they're yeah. fine they occur randomly in the population complicated jigsaw puzzle and some Ex- bits matter some bits exactly don't. Yeah. exactly so what we need to be able to understand is which changes actually mean something and those are the changes then we want to monitor those patients and go after those right so which eye conditions are most viable uh, currently possibly in the future for uh, gene therapy treatment and why is the eye particularly suitable uh, for this treatment compared to other parts of the body so the eye, I'll take an answer the yeah, second sure, question yeah. first. Two questions in one. <laughs> uh, value for money. The eye is perfect because um, it's pretty sheltered from the immune system. So the way the immune system works in the eye is very different to how it works in most of the rest of the body. There are key organs in the body where we have this altered immune system so that it's known as immune privilege, mm. which means that when you put in the viral vector, you're not going to have such a strong reaction to that viral vector by the immune system, which means that the virus can get on and do what it needs to do and replace the gene with limited side effects. I'm not saying no side effects, but limited side so effects. So is that effectively saying that the immune system in that part of the body is is less? It's dampened and it's altered. Right, okay. Yeah, so it we has use the technical terms, that's fair enough, yep. Yeah, so it, overreach. Yep. it doesn't have um, a, a strong... Um, response as you would get okay. in, mo- in so it's just it's a suitable event. environment in which to put something alien for want of a better word in exactly and it's more likely to do what we're seeking it to do exactly and also we can visualize the eye in, which, in a way that we can't visualize other aspects of the body mm-hmm. a lot of the cells in the eye um, are there for life they're not regenerative cells so you don't mm. need to keep replacing the therapy once you've got it in there uh-huh. it's there for life See. in theory mm-hmm. um and uh, in theory, also, you've got a control eye. So it's a um, great way for f- at least phase one trials where you're monitoring safety. Mm-hmm. Tick, tick, tick. Uh, so which particular eye conditions then are most suitable for the treatment, the do we think? At the moment, the focus is more on um, single gene disorders. So that's why we're going after choroidopenia, mm-hmm. RP65, RPGR, um, retinitis pigmentosa, because they're all single gene mutations that cause a loss of function in the protein. So that protein is abnormal and it degrades away. It doesn't actually do anything. I did do a review on this, and the last time I checked, so in my published article, there were over 50 gene therapy trials targeting 17 different ophthalmic conditions. Right. So some of them were also related to macular degeneration. Mm. Um, so some of the other international trials were looking at 
doing what the anti-VEGF injections do, but via gene therapy. I so see, you're right, not okay. having repeated treatments. Yep. Um, we've also got a, a macular degeneration trial on in Oxford, mm-hmm. um, which is targeting dry AMD, which is more on a genetic basis, but um, that's a sponsor trial, so they haven't released the details. Yeah, makes sense. What's yep. happening in the background. Mm-hmm. So the first ones that you mentioned, are they largely inherited retinal diseases? And does are they easier to... Uh, well, you, as you say, they're easier to deal with because there's a specific gene. Yes. Yeah. So it's a single mutation in a single gene. Yeah. Uh, we can identify that mutation with genetic testing. And then all we're doing is putting in a healthy working copy of that defective gene via the viral vector mm-hmm. to replace that. So you're producing now a healthy working copy of the protein, which can act normally and pr- preserve the remaining retinal cells. And something like AMD is more complicated because of either the number of genes involved or because it's a more complicated process or maybe both? So with AMD, there are a number of genes identified, but they are not certain. So it's not like with choroidemia or RP where you have a mutation in that gene, you're going to get the defect. Right, I see. It increases your risk factor. So it's an interplay then between genetics and lifestyle Mm -hmm. with some genes having a stronger effect than others mm-hmm. um so it's not such a clear-cut mechanism that we just need to replace this protein right. it's so a lot more complex you may be able to do it but this isn't necessarily going to stop amd in someone with a high you know a high risk or a certain lifestyle or whatever it is exactly yeah. if you're a smoker then mm. you're still going to yeah suffer. that's maybe concentrate on that uh fair <laughs> enough so uh what equipment or techniques are you using uh for this research and when treating patients so there's obviously a lot of our members have various bits of kit they use as other super super whiz bang imaging uh kit other things that you're using to to undertake this research and to uh, explore these treatments so I'm, I'm always striking the balance between what is accepted by the regulatory authorities, such as the FDA right. and the EMA, because they need to accept what I'm doing mm. to accept my results. Sure. Um, and I'm also balancing that against scientific rigor. Mm. So we do a lot of, of testing um, based on patient feedback, based on the mechanisms in the eye. Um, and my hope at the end of my career is to come up with a list of tests that when you see a specific defect and, you know, it affects that number of cells, well, these are the functions that we then need to look at. So yeah, sure, yeah. Everything we do is indirect. It's not like with preclinical work in the lab where you can just cut open the cells and look directly. Mm. So visual acuity is a mainstay because everyone knows that, accepts that. And some of my work has been about optimizing the way we measure visual acuity mm. because with visual field loss, it's, imagine tunnel vision trying to track across a regular chart. Mm. It's extremely difficult. So your results you get are quite variable. Mm. Um, they, then we're also looking at color vision, night vision, relating that to imaging to understand where these responses are coming from. Most of our imaging is using the Heidelberg system currently. Um but we, we have been using adaptive optics as well, where you can see individual cone cells, which is super nice. exciting. Yep. And then uh, we're also looking at um, autofluorescence because uh, that shows different layers of defects and you can pick things up at different stages of diseases. Um, so there's a number of techniques and as things are being developed, so OCT and geography, is gaining interest in retinal disease. 
um, at the moment as well. So that as, as new techniques are developed, we're always trying to look, well, where, what does this tell us about the pathological process? Yeah. And how useful is that going to what be in the context of other things that we're doing? Yeah, what can it actually tell you? In terms of the conflict between research and the FDA, is it that the FDA have a, a particular list and they just say, well, if it's not on the list, you're not coming in? Or is it that the kind of things that you're looking at with your from the research angle is is more detailed or looking at it a different way what do you, is there a particular way in which those two criteria are conflicting yeah it's it's a mix of those factors so they have their tests that they're familiar with things that have been validated previously mm. um so to get anything new um it, it, you can do it but then you have to do validation studies right so you have to sh- prove that uh, what it is measuring what you want it to measure mm. that it's going to pick up a change and you need to set that value of change right. in these validation studies which you then take forward to your clinical trials mm. so it's quite a lot of work outside of the clinical trials to then support the actual big interventional trials and i i think a lot of people don't realize just how much extra work has to be done sure. for the big sexy research so even if within uh, research you have a test and you're saying look this is a better way of finding out whether someone's visual field is succeeding or what the actual damage is the fda might be saying yeah, but you know where, where's the proof yeah exactly yeah. so one I, mean, I suppose that's quite a good thing overall for them to say yes absolutely so one of the things for example is they they familiar with the 100 hue test for color vision mm-hmm. uh, so the 100 hue is not very sensitive to changes it was never designed for that purpose right. um, so it's not really sensitive to pick up the changes that our patients are reporting um, and the changes that we're expecting so using some because and you can't you need quite large change because the test retest variability in yeah, the hundred sure. Q is very large. It's quite challenging again when you've got tunnel vision rather than seeing a whole load of caps in one go. You, you if you can only see a handful, mm. um, it's quite challenging test to do. So that increases the variability even more. So then we've we've taken commercial color vision computerized tests. Um, we've optimized them for our patient cohort. I've then tested them in loads of patients from the clinic and age and sex match normal data as well um, and compared that to imaging to understand what factors are important for the results that we're seeing um, to understand why we're getting color vision changes in these patients um, and then that information has to be submitted and then they decide, well, do do they want more information or yeah, are they going to sure. accept that? So it sounds like this is quite a good way uh, to start developing more granular level understanding of how people's vision works and the function works and how to measure it, even besides the idea of gene therapy. This is actually doing that as well definitely so in when i'm i'm obviously i'm looking at clinical endpoints for trials but within my work i'm always want to understand why are we getting Mm. the the test results we're seeing i like to understand what is driving that on a cellular level sounds very very sensible and based on that work i also try and build in guidance for low vision practitioners so when you're seeing these patients in practice not just low vision practitioners even just normal practice so for example the VA example Mm. how do we get more accurate measures of visual acuity or at the other end of the the scale I've done some work on how do we use established tests to quantify vision that was 
maybe count fingers mm. because count fingers covers a huge yeah presumably yeah. scale of and patients within that have different levels of quality of life so yeah, a small change there can make a big change on their actual mm. life so we should be monitoring those patients better mm. so i'm always trying to see well what what is it that i'm doing that i can feed back to people in practice people in low vision care to help them help these patients in a much more um, robust yes, way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so another piece of work I've done is looking around, uh, looking at the uh, reading ability, so reading speed, reading acuity. Mm. And with choroideremia, we get a really neat model of a retinal disease because they've got these clean islands of preserved retina that we can measure, which you don't get in other RPs. Right. But the effect on function is similar to other forms of RP. See, right. So what I learned from choroideremia, I can then apply to other patient populations. Mm. But we were able to figure out, well, what's the minimum size of letter you need to be able to read? How many letters do you need to be able to see in one go to be able to read? What's What helps drive comfortable vision? And yes. fitting that into the existing literature out there, but using a disease model is, is really neat. Yeah, it does sound great because obviously a lot of this can sound very theoretical and gene-based and then you're actually dealing with well how do people actually interact with reading and what do they need to try and read better and uh, it's very functional in that regard is there any relation to glaucoma in any of this i just feel the need to ask obviously because it's a bit of a, a mystery and it's quite complex how to measure function and uh, ability within that i do use some of the glaucoma work in visual fields sure. and adapt that to the work i'm doing with visual fields um and especially microperimetry mm -hmm. in yep. the Brodcone dystrophies um, or genetic eye disease. Um, so I've spoken to some people who work in glaucoma and we do share a bit of knowledge, but that's a very different kettle of fish because it's, it's looking at the nerves directly. Mm. And in um, RP and other Brodcone dystrophies, actually in all genetic diseases, because the same in Stargardt's, which is more central loss, you do get remodeling of the, um, the nerves and the or the whole eye, uh, but that's much later on in the disease, and it's much more subtle than what's happening in glaucoma. Right. So there's not too much direct comparison yeah, um, sure. at the moment. We'll leave that to one side for now. Yes. <laughs> so what part does the visual brain uh, play in gene therapy? How have you used uh, brain imaging to learn more about that? Oh, this is all very exciting. Great. So there are... That's what we like. <laughs> So there have been little bits of work here and there in the literature which have indicated that you do get secondary changes in the adult brain after getting um, eye disease. And mm. um, with a lot of the genetic eye diseases, they do tend to onset later on in life, so outside of what we consider the developmental period, so late teens, 20s, 30s, mm. sometimes even older. Um and we know that visual field is preserved along the pathway between the eye and the brain, and even within the brain, between um, the primary visual cortex, which is at the back of the head, and the higher visual areas. With such visual creatures, a huge amount of the brain is, is connected into vision yeah, in sure. some way or another. Mm. So there are some... Um, people who estimate that over 50% of the brain can be involved in some sort of visual processing. That much? Wow. Absolutely. This is one of the things that annoys me when people say, like, oh, we only use a third of our brains and that's why I can't remember why I came into this room and what I was looking for. It's like this, this yeah. underestimates how much of our brain is involved in just walking around, seeing, processing, perceiving. 
So that is a popular myth, and it's not true. Right. Um, so the research that that comes from is looking at a very specific aspect of the way the brain works. Ah, right, it doesn't actually okay. reflect the activity. So you mean the idea that, oh, we only use X amount of our brain is, is exactly. the myth, right? Yeah, right? So the piece of work that gave rise to the popular myth that we yeah. only use a certain percentage of our brain was looking at a very specific aspect of processing. Mm-hmm. So it was looking at how many synapses can physically fire at any one time. Right. But that is that is literally at the same time. Oh, okay. Whereas most synapses are offset by milliseconds. Ah. So it's not really a true reflection of the activity in the brain mm. because in, in addition to synapses firing, you've also got signals travelling down axons and... Right moving across so that is completely a myth i see okay well good good to get that covered (laughs) so when you were talking about how um you know the brain um there's still a pathway between uh the visual field and the brain uh when you uh in some of these diseases uh is this because basically the brain is still you know expecting to receive information but as a result of the disease is no longer receiving information possibly that could be it there also there's also evidence that you get retinal remodeling so amongst the bipolar cells and the ganglion cells and the horizontal cells etc there's a lot of remodeling going on when you lose your photoreceptors and your rpe mm. um and those bits are connected directly to the brain via the visual pathway. So our theory is that there's remodeling along that pathway. Um, there's also this idea amongst patients that well, when I lose my sight, my hearing gets better. Mm. And a lot of people believe this. So if that's the case, it's either because there's remodeling along the pathways so that you can tap into the other senses more or... Um, it's an attentional thing. So the information is always there, but because Mm. we pay so much attention to our vision, we're not paying as much attention to the other senses, but now we are. So uh, one of the things I'm looking at now is we've done MRI imaging of uh, patients with genetic eye disease. We've chosen two eye diseases. So we've chosen Stargardt's patients who have more macular disease. So they have the central loss and we've got choroideremia patients who have peripheral loss and relative central preservation. And we're comparing the visual pathways both functionally and structurally in these patients and relating that to what's happening at the level of the retina using um, OCT retinal imaging. And I've also done visual function measures, so VA, colour vision, contrast sensitivity in those patients to understand how all of that interacts together. So I'm looking at that at the moment and the idea is to try and tease out how the brain changes in central loss versus peripheral loss. And that's especially interesting because you do get what we call cortical magnification. So more of our brain is dedicated to representing the information from the macular region Mm. than from the periphery. Yeah. So, and all this is at least in part, am I right in saying, important and necessary because if you're going to replace genes, if you're going to do gene therapy, you need to know more about the mechanism of how the images, uh, how the information is processed in the brain because if you don't, then you can replace a gene. You can do mess around with that, but you don't quite know whether that's going to have the required effect unless you know exactly what the interaction is and how the brain adapts to uh, the loss of information or gaining Exa- it back. You know? Exactly, exactly. So in our d- uh, phase one gene therapy trial for choroideremia, um, not just ours, but in other trials around the world, about 20% of patients improved in vision mm. and the rest stayed stable. So most of that is going to be explained by what's happening at the level of the photoreceptors. Mm. But it did get me wondering about what's happening further downstream. 
um, and whether we could possibly improve those success rates for improvement um, if we also tackled any downstream changes in the brain. Mm. So that's where the interest in this area came for f- from me. Um, and so then I decided to do a PhD in it, which I've come close to finishing. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, so does this, would this suggest that it's better to do gene therapy at a younger age than an older age? It will always be better to do gene therapy younger. I see, right, okay. Uh, because most of gene therapy is about preserving what is remaining. Oh, I see, right. So okay. we can't replace what's lost. Yes. Uh, you'll need combined stem cell and gene therapy, which is the okay. holy grail for the I'll, future. I'll get right on that, yep, okay. <laughs> um, but we might be able to improve our outcomes for even the older patients. Mm. And again, it's all about quality of life. Yes, yeah. So... One of the things I learned from working in the retina implant trials and from working um, on the very low vision patients is small changes when you get into low vision can make a massive impact on Mm, quality of life. So I don't think we should just be driven by looking at changes in in the vision, but by what is driving quality of life for our patients at the end of the day. Absolutely. And on that, NICE have now approved ocular gene therapy. So... How close are we to this being a realistic treatment option for most people with AMD, retinitis pigmentosa, or choroideremia, do you think? Yeah, this is very exciting. So NICE have approved um, the gene therapy for RPE65 uh, genetic mutations, which is Labour's congenital amaurosis. Mm-hmm. So that was the first ocular gene therapy that was trialled. That, w- that was all started probably close to 15 years ago now. Right, yep. Um, but it sets a precedent for other gene therapies to be approved. Mm-hmm. So um, choroideremia is in phase two, three trials. Um, the RPGR is in phase one, two trials. Quite a few of the AMD um, are in uh, various stages of the the phases. So you need you have to go through three phases yep. of um, clinical trials before you can get approval. So the, the pathway is phase one, uh, the preclinical work, phase one, two, three, clinical trials. Then you go to the regulatory authorities. Then you go to NICE. Right. And then the last hurdle is the funding. Right. Yep. So we're now at the last hurdle. It's just waiting for one of the CCGs to approve the funding in that area. Mm-hmm. And then the patients are ready to go. Great. So and that's, it's that's imminent. Yes, yeah, so that's for choroideremia specifically? Or that's that? for RP65, yeah, which right, is the okay. one approved by NICE. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. Great news. Uh, and for things like AMD, I mean, what what stage is that at? Uh, so the Oxford trial. As you say, well, there's various trials. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So okay. the Oxford trial is is phase one two. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several other trials which uh, the papers have been released from phase one two. So that I, I'm guessing some of those are going to be in phase three, but they're not in Oxford, so I'm not really sure yeah, where enough, yeah. they're at. Um, but they, they are a slightly different mechanism because the ones yeah. for wet AMD are more working on the the VEGF pathway yeah. rather than on the actual genetic mutations. So mm. that will be interesting to see how um, how translatable that approval will be to those. Great. But it's an exciting time for gene therapy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sounds absolutely like it. Um, as some conditions move from untreatable to treatable, uh, things that previously we couldn't do anything about and suddenly now we can. How might that affect management of a patient as a whole for people uh, treating patients? We definitely need to be more aware of these conditions. So people in practice, 
uh, now that gene therapy is becoming a reality and there's so many more trials on uh, that patients anywhere in the UK are ele- eligible for these trials. Mm. So it's it's important to be aware so that we're, we're letting our patients know that they have these options and there is hope for their future. Mm. When I've talked to patients, a lot of the feedback I've had from them is when they were initially seen, they were just told, oh, there's nothing we can do for you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Have a nice life. Yeah. And that dev- that is really devastating for yeah. them. And it's very difficult for them to get over that and then engage in a positive way with healthcare practitioners in the future. So we need to be really mindful of that. And I think it's it's nice to be able to give patients a bit of hope. But also from the work that we're doing and others are doing, um, these patients with genetic eye disease, I think, were relatively neglected Mm. because there wasn't much we could do for them. Whereas now we're actually producing active guidelines saying, okay, this is what you can monitor. This is how you can monitor them. This is what you can do to give them help with practical tasks such as reading. Um, Let's do more for them. Mm. And we also need to be mindful to help preserve their neural cells more. So screen for glaucoma. Um, because the gene therapy isn't going to work if the nerves are also shot. Yeah, sure. um, Screen for cataracts, because that's a treatable pathology. Uh, screen for macular edema, which again is a treatable pathology, to help preserve the retina as much as possible. So if we can get to a point where we can offer them a therapy, then the rest of the eye is in as good a shape as it possibly can be. But also for quality of life, it's everything's else is as good as it possibly can be yeah it's funny how we think you know there's been uh, previously a condition like if someone had dementia people might think well that sort of trumps everything else and let's concentrate on that and not think about other things but that can even happen just with one uh, part of the body like the eye you know there's this thing that previously would have thought well it doesn't this is going to trump everything else but now if that's not the case uh, then the whole of the eye needs to be thought about in its entirety. Exactly, exactly. And just because we can't get someone up to 6'6", that little bit of extra clarity from having appropriate glasses might be enough mm. to give that patient what they need to do. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's about managing patient expectations whilst giving them hope, but also doing the best we possibly can for mm. them. So, um, And we can't do that if we're not measuring the vision accurately mm. and if we're not paying attention to these other aspects. Mm. And if we're not aware that these things are treatable. So, for example, with the trials, if you see a patient with any of the genetic diseases that we're trialing or another centre are trialing, you can get those patients referred to that centre to make them eligible to be on that trial. We we see people from literally all over the UK. Mm -hmm. So in Oxford, we're very lucky we have a a specialist genetics eye centre. So Professor McLaren, Professor Downs um, are... Uh, leading that effort um, and we've also got Professor Issa who all do an amazing job in seeing these patients and it's not just the trials but all this other work that we're doing and our patients are wonderful because they help us out with this by volunteering for these various studies and giving Mm. us their their time and their expertise because they are the experts on their own diseases. Yeah, often the way, yeah. Do you find this considerations in explaining this kind of treatment to a patient as opposed to sort of other treatments? Because obviously when you start talking about genes, people start thinking about, you know, their kids if they haven't had any and all that sort of thing. Are are there ways in which it needs to be explained or considerations you think are important for this particular treatment? Yeah, my recommendation is... People should not go for genetic testing without a genetic counselling service. Right. So in Oxford, we do have a genetic counsellor because 
it's not like a blood test where you get a clear yes or no. Mm. Um, genetic testing is a lot more complicated yeah. for ma- many of the reasons we spoke about earlier. Yeah. Um, but so also it increases risk rather than you just... It doesn't mean something's definitely yeah, going to happen. Yeah, but also we don't always know which changes are pathological. Yeah, sure, Sometimes yeah. we don't pick up changes because yeah. they're in a non-coding part of the mm. DNA. So what does a genetic counsellor do? Genetic counsellor talks about the the um, the results and puts them in context, talks about risks for passing on the genetics to the children. Right. Um, you find you get a lot of family issues mm. coming out yep. with when genetics are involved. Indeed. Parents get can get a lot of guilt. Right. So it's just talking through all of that mm-hmm. to make sure that the families understand and trying to assuage those feelings, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Great. Okay. So we've talked a lot about what might be next for gene therapy, but what's next in particular for your research? What are you up to next? So I'm uh, currently analysing the MRI data, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. So I hope to have some results for that very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm submitting my thesis in um, three, four months. So not long left to go yeah. <laughs> uh, to get that finished. Is I've it Christmas? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've already told my parents to convert their spare room into an office for me when yep. I arrive. <laughs> Um, so uh, that then I've got a grant to carry on with that work and I'm hoping mm. to carry on with that further to look at longitudinal changes. So I'm in the process of applying for that. I still do one day a week of clinical work in the hospital mm. as well. Um, and then um, I'm also still involved in the gene therapy trials. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of directions to take the work in. It's it's just figuring out where to go and we're we're getting more staff in Oxford at the moment as well so we've had two new optometrists join in the last 18 months which is exciting so we can do a lot more and building links with other departments other researchers across fields Mm. as well to just expand this work because there's so much that needs doing so many genes so little time exactly there it is Jasmine. thank you very much for joining us today thank you for having me Thank you very much to Jasleen for her time and indeed her work and for explaining it so patiently to me. We'll be back next time with another podcast and from now we'll be speaking to you on the third Friday of every month. But why not subscribe to avoid forgetting? Please also rate and review the podcast and that would be fabulous. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much for listening.